Hi, I'm James Rodier, and welcome to the American Institute of Biological Sciences Bioscience Talks, a forum for integrating the life sciences, where we discuss the latest bioscience publications. As a reminder, if you'd like to read more, point your browser to bioscience.oxfordjournals.org. And if you have a chance, please rate us on iTunes. For our fourth episode, I'm joined by Dr. Jennifer Balch of the University of Colorado Boulder. We'll be discussing her work in the Brazilian Amazon, where she and her colleagues conducted a long-term experiment to examine the effects of fire on tropical forests. You'll hear more in the interview, but their work involved the deliberate setting of fires over a more than 10-year period. They tested different fire frequencies and looked at the numbers and types of trees that survived and those that didn't. They also encountered a couple of surprises along the way, which she'll tell you about. And I also want to note that her article is part of a bioscience special section on large-scale experiments in tropical forests. That's in our September issue, and it's available online now. So let's get to the interview. Dr. Balch, thank you very much for being here. Thank you for having me. Great. And before we talk about the experimental design, I was hoping you could talk to us a little bit about the area in which the experiment was conducted. Uh, where is it, and kind of what's it like? Yeah, it's a very interesting place in the world. It's right smack dab in the middle of what is an expanding agricultural frontier in the south eastern Amazon. Um, in fact, maybe you could think of it in terms of what the western expansion was in the U.S. 200 years ago. Um, it's actually a north, northward expansion in the Amazon as people and, and agriculture is moving, moving in. And it's also right at the juncture of an ecotonal boundary between more humid and closed canopy tropical rainforests and the Brazilian savanna or Cerrado. Okay, so we're talking about an area that's not the traditional rainforest we would think of. It's on the cusp between that and a savanna area. Yeah, the forests that I work in are they're shorter in stature than than more northern Amazon forests. They are closed canopy. Um, they still hold quite a bit of of diversity. About a uh, hundred different a hundred different species. Tree species have entered our inventory uh, so far, which is much lower than more northern Amazon forests, but still very high um, compared to temperate forests, for example. And how did you find this particular site? So this site was chosen um, both because it's smack in the middle of a really um, hot area in terms of expansion of agriculture and cattle pasture, but also because it is right at this boundary between two major biomes. And the, the big question there is, what's going to happen to these forests? Will they survive the really unnatural exposure to human-caused fire? Or are people turning um, this Amazon rainforest and this part of the Amazon into a degraded grassland state? And roughly how big is the study area? So the the place where we're actually doing this study is on is on a private ranch that's that's owned by uh, Blyado Maggi and his family. This is one of the largest soy producers in the world um, and the largest soy producer in Brazil. And we chose to work with him because he's maintaining half of his property um, as forest. So by Brazilian environmental legislation and codes, uh, Brazilian landowners in the Amazon have to maintain at least eighty percent of their their land as forest. And if it's in this ecotonal range, they have to maintain 50% of their lands as forest. And so this, this landowner is doing just that. And it's literally the size of a national park. And so we, we're working with them because we wanted to know how, how forest fires are going to transform this landscape. And speaking of fire, why do you study burning in particular? You know, there are obviously a lot of perturbations in these types of areas, but what makes burning special? 
Well, fire is, is a critical tool that's used in frontier expansion. It's used to deforest. It's used to remove unwanted biomass from trees and convert the landscape for, for other uses, such as soy production or cattle pasture. So fire is used throughout this landscape as, as a management tool. Now, the types of fires that we've been studying are the ones that actually escape from those intended uses and move into forest understories. So you've got a certain amount of fire that's acceptable under the regulation, but then what you're looking at is really more the escaped fires that are a result of that, right? Yeah, exactly. We're looking at, at low-intensity surface fires that move it through the understory of, of forests. They, they weren't intentional. They're not serving a land management purpose. Um, but they can, they can go for, for weeks or months at a time, and they can carry through really large tracts of otherwise intact forest. Uh, just to give you one example, during the, the El Nino-related drought of 97-98, uh, 39,000 square kilometers of otherwise intact forest burned in the Amazon because of these um, escaped wildfires. Now, w when you're creating these sorts of, you know, experimental conditions, how do you set the fires? You know, how, how do you decide how large to make them or what area to initiate them in? Is it, is it started at a single point or is it widespread? Yeah, we, we um, have a really, um, really well-controlled uh, environment under which we're setting our, our experimental burns. We, we set our burns in 50 hectare chunks, um, which is a kilometer by a half kilometer. And we have about 30 to 40 people involved in the setting of these burns and also in the monitoring of them and also taking the data from them. So we, we set about 10 kilometers of fire line per 50 hectare chunk of forest. And that takes us about three or four days to pull off. And uh, we cut fire breaks around the perimeter of our experimental burn. So pathways that are a meter or two in width that we've removed all of the all of the leaf litter, all of the woody debris, so that there's no chance that those fires can can hop over. And we we set them using kerosene drip torches. So we use a combination of kerosene and, and diesel fuel to to actually set the initial fire line, which then carries into the leaf litter and through the forest on its own. Okay, and I hope we could talk a little bit about the design of the experiment itself. You had the area subdivided into three parts, right? That's correct. We have a, a plot that we have burned... Uh, annually, so every year um, over the course of six years. And then we had a plot that we burned every three years during that same time period. And then a plot that didn't burn at all because we needed to understand how the forest would respond to just ambient natural environmental conditions. One other important point about the experimental design is that it was trying to mimic a certain conditions and scenarios. So the, the annual burn was meant to mimic um, land use burns that could escape yearly. So pasture burning is something that can happen on an annual basis or deforestation fires. Um, it takes a, a lot of burning to actually remove all those trees. And so that's something that, that can also happen on an annual basis. And the second plot was burned every three years to try and mimic kind of natural climate conditions and El Nino cycles, which also happen on three to four year cycles. So we're trying to mimic both the, the human frequency of fire that can happen, and, and then the climate-related drivers of fire. And this experiment was started in 2004, right? That's correct. Okay, and I know you had a game-changing drought in 2007, but initially, how did the forest stand up to those first fires that were set? 
Well, one of the surprising things was actually how how well the forest withstood the initial one and two burns. Um, you know, we were surprised that there wasn't a substantial response at that time. Um, there was lower mortality than had been witnessed in in other regions of the Amazon that that had documented uh, mortality rates after fire. Um, so that was one of the big surprises. Right. So you start off with this relatively low mortality, but then in 2007, you have this big drought and that kills a lot of trees. Was that mostly in one of the three areas or was it spread across the group? Yeah, that was um, concentrated in the plot that burned every three years, which was counterintuitive also um, because it's a lower frequency of fire, but the timing is everything. And I think that's one lesson that we learned out of this experiment that was, is that timing is critical. So how does that exactly happen? I mean, you know, the initial thought would be, at least to me, uh, the area that's burned yearly should be the one that's the worst hit when you have a drought. Why isn't that the case? Well, what we were doing almost unintentionally was we were removing the fuels fast enough that the intensity of the fires were lower than they were in the plot that burned every three years. So three years happened to be a window of time when the fuels could accumulate from the previous burn. So what fires do is they kill trees. And when those trees die, as they die, they drop their leaves and their, their stems and bark. And as they come down, they increase the fuel loads on the, on the forest floor. And so three years was the perfect amount of time to build up those fuels from those previous disturbance events. So that when we did have a fire, that fire was more intense. And what do the forest areas look like after this type of event? You know, are we talking about a, a barren moonscape or is this a relatively low mortality that we wouldn't even notice? Yeah, so um, the drought response during that particular year was double what the, what the years before were. So it was about 2% in average years and about 3 3.5% in, uh, in the years that we had drought. And so that's not a substantial difference that you can see that in the forest. But the, the drought and fire combined led to a mortality of over half of the trees. And so the forest looks completely different. The canopy is open. Um, you have to wear sunglasses in the burn plots where you don't have to in the, in the plot that, that is the control. Um, the other really notable striking difference is the invasion of grasses. And so we had... Um, we had substantial invasion of grasses into the forest that burned into both forests, both forest plots that burned of a suite of invasive grasses that are related to and brought in by, um, by land use and cattle pastures. And in the areas where you were seeing this grassland incursion, was it the same in the annual burns and the triennial burns or were those different? They were different. And that was also a surprise as well. Um, the number of species of grasses that were invading were, was higher in the plot that burned every three years. And in the plot that burned annually, it was really dominated by one, by one grass species. So one striking message here is that the frequency of burning is also selecting for a different suite of grass species. And most of these are non-native. There are a couple native species, but most of them are C4 grasses, uh, shade intolerant grasses, fire adapted. And it's a very different landscape um, in both of the, in the burn plots. And is the fear then that grasslands could kind of take over wherever human activity is nearby? That is the concern. There's a, a strong 
um, correlation between grass invasion and edges and fire. And so the, the three combination, that, that combination of three things is, is really worrisome um, because land use and land management is bringing invasive grasses along with it. Fire use is also part of frontier expansion and, and an increasing number of edges um, associated with with kind of slicing and dicing the Amazon for, for land use purposes um, is really um, creating the perfect scenario for these grasses to to expand and, and to do well. So what sort of carbon effects are we seeing from this, either from the grassland transition or from the fires themselves? Yeah, so a lot of a lot of carbon goes up with the smoke from fires. And so um, the the standing stocks in terms of above ground carbon in these in these forests that we're studying are about 160 tons per hectare and about 20 tons of carbon goes up just from the the burning of the initial fuels and then through time as those trees die um, we commit about another 100 tons um, if that forest area turns into to grassland and would th- we expect those that carbon to then have a knock-on effect into any climate change effects that we were seeing? So, yeah, so that carbon goes straight, straight up into the atmosphere and um, increases global concentration levels of carbon dioxide, which are hovering right now around 400 ppms. Um, now, from our experiment, obviously, that's a small piece, but if we extrapolate that to... Um, that area that burned and think about both the carbon that goes up from the initial fuel combustion and how much will go up because of the number of trees that are killed. It is quite a substantial amount. And these types of changes, are they happening at a rate that's faster than what, you know, has been traditionally expected? We documented one of the highest tree mortality rates ever witnessed in Amazon forest. So that was also one remarkable um, piece of this is that, um, you know, this isn't climate change that's happening and causing forest dieback over a long period of time. This is happening already because of the combination of fire and drought well before any climate-driven degradation. So this is a case where we would expect to see a change, but we're now seeing it as a result of fire and sooner uh, rather than as a result of climate change. Exactly. So fire can be a a fast changer uh, for the forest, and I think that was really one important piece out of our work is that over the time of a, over the period of a decade, we were able to transform this forest into something that looks very, very different than what it did originally. And just for the purpose of comparison, what was the previous estimate? About 50 years at least. Wow. So you're, you're looking at something that's, you know, almost an order of magnitude more quick. Yeah, it's, it's a very different scenario of change. And I, I don't think it's necessarily on people's uh, on the forefront of people, people's minds, because we're, there's so much discussion about climate change, um, and tropical forests, rainforests aren't supposed to burn, but they're burning now. And and um, Brazil's deforestation rates have actually decreased over the past um, few years, but the numbers of fires haven't. And so that's one sort of message that fire is really an important agent of change for Amazon forests. And so it kind of clearly makes sense that curtailing this sort of burning is something that you'd want to do, but is it something that can be done? And if so, how? I think the most important thing that people can do is, is limiting their fire use uh, during certain periods of the year and uh, shifting to management techniques that don't include fire. 
And are there any efforts underway to sort of manage around these large droughts so that you can prevent fire at a time when the forest is most vulnerable? Not that I'm aware of. The The difficulty is in being able to predict when these droughts are going to occur and then to co-align um, when the fire prohibited fire season is. Um, so there is a standard prohibit, prohibited fire season, which is during about a month of time during the peak dry season. Um, but that may not be enough. That, that may have to be expanded or alternative mechanisms of land management have to be um, provided. And one thing I always wonder about large-scale experiments like this one is, are there any plans to repeat it? You know, um, is there any plan to do this in another biome in a similar way? Uh, not on our end. Uh, there's no current plans to repeat it. The question now has shifted. So we, we've seen such high mortality, and we've seen really a drastic conversion from, from tropical forest to um, an invaded, degraded grassland. Now the question is, how can we help the forest recover? Um, so the, the question now is, what's the mechanism of forest recovery, if at all? And what kind of experiments are being done to look into that? So one is just now following what, what the, the forest is going to do. So we have long-term monitoring to, to see what species are going to thrive and do well and which species are, gonna, are not going to thrive and do well. Who are the new players? Um, so one is just monitoring. The next, hopefully, big big research push will be to do some experiments and, and potentially do some plantings of individual species to see which ones are the, the ones that can recover and, and help this forest. And are there any burning experiments going on, either in your old experimental site or other ones? So we do have um, another experiment going, not at this same plot site, but just about 30 kilometers away, where we're looking at how fires are different under different climate scenarios. And so we're doing that by, by setting experimental burns throughout the dry season, not just at the peak dry season, which we did in this experiment, but but looking at how the, the fires are responding to different climate conditions. And that's being led by my colleague, Paulo Brando, at Woods Hole Research Center. And one of the things I always wonder about with these large-scale experiments is, did you encounter any big surprises? You know, obviously you had the surprise of the drought and fire combined effect, but were there any others? Well, one surprise in this experiment was the, the role that leafcutter ants can play. Um, they essentially are tiny firefighters that, uh, because of their habit of removing all the leaves and debris uh, from their trail networks and their nests, um, they actually can create many, many fuel breaks, many fire breaks. And they also really love to live at the edge. So they provide kind of a natural um, fire prevention mechanism um, that is just inherent to the forest. And that was one of the really surprising things that we found. And are those ants found widespread throughout the Amazon, or are they isolated into specific areas? They are uh, widespread throughout the Amazon. It's a, it's a genus of species, um, Ada. And so there are many, many different species throughout the Amazon. So, you know, one, one, that was one surprise, but one question, obviously, is, you know, how, how effective is this at a regional scale um, for preventing fire? Thanks. And we usually like to close with a look at future research. So this needn't be an experiment that's ongoing, but if you could design, say, your perfect experiment, what would that look like? I think what I would really want to dive into is, is how, how the, the forest resilience and resistance to fire changes across the Amazon. So as you move um, more towards the northwestern Amazon, um, how does... How does the response change? 
because there is there is quite a difference in terms of the the stature of the forest and the turnover of the forest and the diversity of the forest um, as you go from a southeastern direction to a northwestern direction, as there is in terms of the climate, the dry seasons where we're at are much longer, um, but they get much shorter as you go towards the northwest. And, and I, I would really like to know how that threshold to fire changes across that gradient. We'll look forward to that experiment. Dr. Balch, thank you very much for joining me. Thank you for having me. And that concludes this episode of Bioscience Talks. Just a reminder, the journal Bioscience is published by Oxford University Press on behalf of the American Institute of Biological Sciences. To read the article we talked about today and the special section, point your browser to bioscience.oxfordjournals.org. Thank you for listening and talk to you next time.